From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. My guest for Episode 3 is Harvey Brown, Emeritus Professor of Philosophy of Physics at Oxford University and Emeritus Fellow of Wolfson College, Oxford. A specialist in the foundations of modern physics, Harvey spent the spring 2018 semester as a residential fellow at the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Study. I got to talk to him just before he left, a conversation that explored how trying to define probability, which at first might sound simple, is actually part of the broader complexity of quantum mechanics. And as with all things complex, the ultimate authority on quantum mechanics is, of course, New York Yankee Hall of Famer Yogi Berra. I'll let Harvey explain. Harvey Brown, first of all, I you've been in residence here the entire semester. I know you're leaving uh, the country this weekend to, to go back to Oxford, so thank you for taking the time on your last day here at Notre Dame to, to talk with me. My pleasure. So while you've been at in residence at Notre Dame this semester, you've been working on a research project titled The Meaning of Probability in Physics. And I'm wondering, is there anything that you're doing there? Does it bear any relation to the idea of me speculating that, say, if I exert a force on this cup of coffee right now, there's a 90% chance that it will fall over? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> and that's that has the kind of the connotation of something objective. Mm-hmm. But, of course, we use probability in many, many different ways in in day-to-day life. I mean, for example, suppose we ask ourselves, what is the probability that it will rain tomorrow? Or what is the probability, for example, that um, President Trump will win the next election? Now, that seems to be a very different kind of thing from the probability of um, physical processes, for example, or, you know, radioactive decays of of, uh, unstable nuclei, and so the question, one of the questions that arises is, is there a single way of understanding probability that encompasses all of these diverse applications to the notion of probability? But by and large, in the literature, we see a kind of division between what people call subjective probability, kind of our best guesses about the future based on what we know of the past, and objective probabilities of the, kinds, of the kind that appears particularly in physics or in games of chance tossing a coin, roulette wheels, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. There we have the intuition that the probabilities are more objective, that they don't just depend on us. And that's a very big issue in in the philosophy of probability theory. Is that distinction really meaningful? Does it really go through? Mm -hmm. Your work on probability involves quantum mechanics. And let's go out on a limb here and say physics was not my best subject in high school. I'm wondering... How would you describe to someone like me quantum mechanics as it relates to maybe what all of us in a more general sense are familiar with as classical physics? What is quantum mechanics in relation well, to that? Well, quantum, quantum mechanics was born um, largely because we didn't understand the interaction between radiation and matter, the way that matter emits radiation and absorbs it. 
and more importantly still, it had a lot to do with the fact that all the models of fundamental matter, <coughs> in particular atoms, in the 19th century made no sense whatsoever. Mm -hmm. The stability of matter, for example, what holds an atom together? What stops the electrons and atoms from simply falling into the nucleus? What stops this? Well, of course, we had the model of the solar system with planets revolving around the sun. But there the analogy broke down because electrons are accelerating, they radiate, they lose energy, and they should fall into the nucleus. So what is it that keeps an atom from collapsing in on itself? Mm -hmm. What is it that keeps bulk matter from collapsing down to next to nothing? And that's where quantum mechanics stepped in. It provided a whole new way of understanding the interactions between elementary particles and nuclei and electrons, for example, that allowed us to understand how something like an atom and a molecule were stable entities. Mm -hmm. That's really the origins of quantum mechanics. But of course, it broke all the rules of classical mechanics, and it introduced very strange notions like wave functions, and it was essentially probabilistic. That was the other big difference from classical mechanics. It didn't allow you to predict exactly what would happen when you did measurements on microsystems, but it allowed you to predict what the probabilities of the outcomes would be. And so the, this probabilistic rule that's known as, the, known as the Born rule is an absolutely essential element in, in quantum mechanics. So when we say... Classical mechanics, classical physics, are we basically talking about the same thing? Are those synonyms for each other? Yeah, essentially. I mean, it's really the, it's the physics of Newton, Isaac Newton, mm -hmm. and how it was developed, particularly in the, <coughs> in the um, 18th and 19th centuries, in combination with our theories of radiation. So Maxwell's theory of electromag electromagnetic field, of which light is a particular phenomenon, a subclass. So we had this idea of particles such as everyday objects and planets, for example, undergoing Newtonian forces between them. We had a whole theory of how these forces worked, the effects that they had on each other. And then we had this theory of radiation, and eventually, of course, we wanted to have a theory in which we understood how matter emits radiation and absorbs it. And that's really where the problems arose. Mm -hmm. Of course, there, was all, there were also problems with Newton's theory of gravity, <clears throat> which eventually led to Einstein's theory, general relativity. But the real scandal at the end of the 19th <laughs> century really was how to understand the interaction of matter and radiation. Mm -hmm. And how to understand... We had these very simple-minded notions of the structure of atoms, and nobody understood how they could be stable. Mm -hmm. And that's where me quantum mechanics stepped in. So, I, I mean, I think... From a gen when I, you know, we all have that classic image of Isaac Newton, the apple falling on his head, and this idea mm -hmm. of of gravity. Where did and and that and then matter being something that we can physically grasp or see or sense mm -hmm. in the world? And you're talking about kind of reconciling these differences between the laws that apply to matter and radiation. Where did the understanding of what radiation was or is? When did that start to? And because that seems like that would have been a later. Well. It was later. It was far later than Newton. Newton didn't really understand what light was. Of course, he had very interesting theories. And it was kind of a mixture, a strange conglomeration of particles and wave-like phenomena. But it was really only in the 19th century that the wave theory of light came into its own. And Maxwell ultimately was able to understand, the great Scottish physicist Maxwell, James Clark Maxwell, was able to understand how light is a specific kind of electromagnetic uh, radiation. And the th fundamental theory of the 
electric and magnetic fields and how they interact with each other and how they interact with, with uh, charged bodies, that was what came out of the, essentially the work of, of Maxwell in the 19th century. And this was a, hu a tremendous advance in physics, certainly the greatest advance in the 19th century. But as I say, the, the, big, uh, the big problem was, first of all, understanding what the electromagnetic fields were. Mm -hmm. Were they states of something? There was the so-called ether that was supposed right. to permeate the whole of the universe, right. and the electromagnetic fields were states of that ether. And light, for example, propagating light represented a propagation of disturbances in the ether at very, very high speed. And when tests were done at the end of the 19th century to try to find out the speed of the Earth with respect to the ether, the, all of these experiments failed. <laughs> we could not find how fast we were going with respect to the ether. Mm -hmm. And that's where Einstein stepped in, essentially, and said there was, we can get rid of the ether, and this what led to his theory of relativity, mm -hmm. which in turn brought in... There were already hints in the 19th century that moving rigid bodies would contract in motion with respect to the ether, and clocks would undergo strange dilation effects, and Einstein systematized that in his, in his special theory of relativity. Mm -hmm. And then 10 years later, he developed his theory of gravity, which is general theory of relativity. But that was all happening <clears throat> to some extent independent of, of, of quantum mechanics, although Einstein was the first to see the connection between the problem of radiation and quantum mechanics, quantum theory, because he was the first person to understand that the radiation field, electromagnetic <coughs> radiation itself, is composed of granular somethings. Mm -hmm. I mean, nowadays we call them photons. He called them light quanta. Mm -hmm. He was the first to realize that the thermodynamic properties of radiation led to a very, very strange granular structure for the radiation field. And that was really one of the early, very important chapters in the development of quantum theory. So when we talk about the radiation, if we're talking about that light could be basically both something granular yes. and a wave function. That's right. And That's right. exist as both of those things, and we don't really know how they can exist. Well, nowadays, of course, we have a much better picture right. of what light is than, than, than Einstein did. Einstein was always puzzled. He said at one stage later in his life, every Tom, Dick, and Harry in physics thinks they know what a photon is. <laughs> he was very skeptical whether they really understood it. But certainly, one of the key sort of popular aspects, if you like, or popular faces of quantum mechanics is the so-called wave-particle dualism, or duality. Mm -hmm. That electrons, as well as photons, under certain circumstances seem to behave like waves, and in other circumstances, they seem to behave like particles. We have a much better understanding of this nowadays than even, I would say, even 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. But that is one of the kind of the faces of quantum mechanics that has, it attributes these strange properties to elementary particles like photons and electrons. Mm -hmm. Hello there. A couple of interesting notes on Harvey while we order. In 2007, he was elected a fellow of the British Academy, the United Kingdom's national body for the humanities and social sciences. He also served as president of the British Society for the Philosophy of Science from 2007 to 2009. Oh, and it turns out we both like pancakes. They're really good. Do you have maple syrup? Of course. Yeah, thank you. I'll go for that. So, we were talking about the difference between basically what led to quantum mechanics arising and explaining this problem of 
classical mechanics not being able to explain these new phenomena that we're observing. To circle back then to what you've been looking at specifically when you've while you've been here at Notre Dame, why is and I, I in the seminar I listened to I remember you talking about right up front saying quantum mechanics really is the um, first branch of physics where probability was of central importance. Why is probability so important to quantum mechanics? Yeah. Well, l- let me give you a kind of a little example as to how, how the probabilities come in in quantum mechanics. We were talking about the fact that something like an electron, an elementary particle, has wave-like properties, mm-hmm. which means it's, it's basically spread out in space, and it propagates like a wave in space by mm-hmm. itself. But when you put a detector in to find where the electron is, the electron always finds, sorry, the detector always finds the electron at a very specific place. So how does that extended entity become mm-hmm. localized in the detector? And because it's extended, there's a probability of it being everywhere where the wave function that describes that extension is finite. I mean, it has a, has a reasonable size. So clearly, there's a puzzle as to how the wave itself becomes localized. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the only way that you can bri- predict what's going to happen is probabilistically because, in a sense... The electron could be anywhere inside that wave when you go to detect it. Mm-hmm. So all you can do is predict what the probability is of finding the, the, the particle in a certain place, and that probability is, is determined by the, the shape of the so-called wave function described mm-hmm. in the electron. So the probabilities come in absolutely intrinsically in the theory. Mm-hmm. It's the first time in physics that our best understanding of the fundamentals that are going on in physics require the notion of probability. In the 19th century, probability also began to play a very important role because we were looking at things like the behavior of gases and heat engines and <clears throat> you try to understand why, how mechanically you can get back the laws of thermodynamics, the laws of efficiency of heat engines. But the gas is a very complicated entity. It has a vast, vast, vast number of molecules. You don't know exactly what they're doing and where they are at a given time. So you introduce probabilistic notions or statistical notions to describe the the behavior of the gas molecules. Mm -hmm. But there's a sense in which those probabilities only represent your ignorance of really what's going on. Now, in quantum mechanics, it doesn't look like that at first sight. It doesn't look as if the probability is arising just because you're ignorant. They're arising because of the very nature of the way we describe these systems using wave functions. So... Quantum mechanics is widely regarded as intrinsically more probabilistic than any other theory in physics. And does that tie into my very limited understanding of what the uncertainty principle is, this idea that if you're talking about something like an electron, if you're trying to measure it, you can either measure with high accuracy its speed or its location, but you can't do both at the same time? I think a better way of putting the uncertainty relation is not so much what you can measure and what you can't measure. The problem is how you prepare the state of a system. So, for example, I have some device that's spewing out electrons one one at a time. And I want to say, well, I'm going to make sure that that electron is highly localized in space. Okay, so I have a beam that's very, very Mm -hmm. localized in space. Quantum mechanics predicts that if you then were to do a measurement on, on its momentum and do it over and over again for each particle coming out, you would get widely... Okay varying results. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you can't prepare an electron in a state of precise localization and precise velocity, for example. 
And it works the other way around. Mm -hmm. If I create a beam of electrons that have a precise velocity, I find I can't localize them very well in space. Mm -hmm. So that's the nature of the uncertainty relation. It's it's related to the probabilistic notions that come in in quantum mechanics, but it has to do with another feature of quantum mechanics, which is called the com non-commutativity of observables, and that's a <laughs> just rolls off that's the tongue. Right? Thing. <laughs> <laughs> that that has to do with the, the the actual formalism of quantum mechanics, and the way that we use abstract linear vector spaces to describe okay. the states of these systems. Mm -hmm. So it's not an immediate consequence of the probabilistic nature. It comes much more into the basic formalism of the theory. In that talk that you gave earlier this semester, I'm a big, I'm a Red Sox fan. I'm not a Yankees mm -hmm. fan, but mm -hmm. you used a great quote from Yogi Berra saying Yogi Berra yeah. may have had the best one-liner explanation of quantum right. mechanics. Right. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Exactly. What does that seemingly impossible advice, at least seemingly impossible in a world of classical mechanics, mm -hmm. what element of truth or wisdom is that getting at in quantum mechanics? Well, suppose, for example, we take something something very sort of simple in quantum mechanics that's called a beam splitter. I can take <clears throat> a, um, a beam of photons, light, and I can shine it at some kind of device that splits the beam into two. Mm -hmm. So it's, this is a so-called beam splitter. You can do this with neutrons and electrons as well. Now, in classical mechanics... If you've got a particle coming into a beam splitter, it will go either one way or the other. <laughs> right. In quantum mechanics, when you solve the, the, the relevant equations, it turns out that instead of having an or, you have an and. It's both in this beam and in that beam. Mm -hmm. And the, this is one of the really serious conceptual problems in quantum mechanics. We don't seem to live in a world where... Um, Tables and chairs, for example, are in different positions at the same time. It right. looks as if somewhere <laughs> along the line, the and becomes an or. Mm -hmm. Now, there is an interpretation, in fact, there are two interpretations of quantum mechanics, in which, in a deep sense, the and never becomes an or. Mm. It's and all the mm -hmm. way up. Mm -hmm. I feel like you talked about this in that seminar. I think right. this is working. <laughs> I, I could feel my mind going, wait, I'm, not, I'm definitely not following this right now. Well, this is called the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics or sometimes the Everett interpretation, named after the man who, who first articulated it in the, in the 1950s. Incidentally, <clears throat> this was the interpretation of quantum mechanics that met Einstein's three criteria for a good theory. It's the only interpretation of quantum mechanics that meets those three criteria. It talks about the physical world as if it's really there, and it's not mind-dependent. Mm -hmm. It's local in the sense that there's no instantaneous action at a distance, this is something that bedevils the other interpretations of quantum mechanics. And finally, it's deterministic, which, which is surprising to most people because you think of quantum mechanics as being fundamentally probabilistic, mm -hmm. so it produces random outcomes. Mm -hmm. But this is a theory in which the fundamental physics is deterministic. Mm -hmm. Now, it's, a very, it's an interpretation a lot of people find hard to swallow because it involves the idea that every time you do experiments, everything that can happen does happen, there's different versions of you watching different outcomes and so on. The universe is constantly branching. But it capture, But uh, Yogi Berra's line captures it so well, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Mm -hmm. In other words, this, it's and and not or. So is, is that idea, I mean, when we pop, popularly hear people talk about something called a multiverse, is that what that idea, that not the same thing? There are two notions of multiverse that are doing the rounds at the moment in physics. 
One is <clears throat> the Everett interpretation of quantum mechanics. But most of the time when you're reading a popular science article and people are talking about the multiverse, they're not talking about this. They're talking about a picture that emerges out of a combination of string theory and the inflationary model of cosmology, where the idea is that in the early universe, the very, very early universe, different universes are popping into existence all the time. Mm -hmm. They're causally um, unrelated to each other. Um, and that notion of multiverse is quite distinct from the idea of a branching, a single branching, a single universe that has branching inside it. Okay. The latter is what we, what we, cons what we consider is one of the possibilities in, in quantum mechanics. Okay. It's not the only, of course, it's not the only interpretation, and uh, there are many, uh, there are several others, um, and they're all. There's still no consensus as to which right. is the right one. <coughs> yeah. Thanks very much. Thank you. So, in that conception with the branchings, would the idea then be? that all those different versions of yourself watching the outcome of the experiment, for instance, all continue to exist in perpetuity then? Or is it kind of an instantaneous thing where there's all these versions of me seeing how this experiment ends, and then once the experiment's over, mm -hmm. I'm somehow reunited no, with no, myself? No, no, you're not no. reunited. Okay. For better or for worse. So the branches are inf <laughs> it's infinitely branching then? Well, it just goes on... Is, is, in fact, it's not just this isn't just happening in measurement processes. It's happening sort of ubiquitously through all kinds of interactions between quantum mechanical systems. Uh, but yes, okay. it's um, it's irreversible essentially. If the universe were finite, um, it, there's a thing in, in quantum mechanics called the quantum recurrence theorem, which would tell you that whatever state the universe is in now. If you wait long enough, if the universe is finite, the state of the universe will come back arbitrarily close to that state. Mm -hmm. In fact, an infinite number of times. Mm -hmm. So there would be a recombination. If the universe were finite, there would be a, a recombination of all these branches eventually. Mm -hmm. Even if it were finite, it would take zillions and zillions of times the age, the present age of the universe for this to happen. Right. So it's not a practical matter. But of course, it's almost sure, certainly the case that the quantum recurrence theorem doesn't apply to the universe as a whole. But, it, but in principle, the branching could itself, un, it could eventually undo itself if the universe were finite. Um, so, from an outsider's perspective, I think one of the things, kind of an assumption that we often make, I know I often make when I'm thinking about science or math, your mind kind of goes immediately to empirical things, things we can measure very precisely, definitions, etc. One of the things I think is so interesting about your work in philosophy physics, though, is that you're looking at some of these terms and saying, well, what does that mean exactly? I mean, we're all kind of accepting this on face value, but what does that actually mean? And I'm wondering, how did you come to turn your microscope, mm -hmm. so to speak, mm -hmm. On a definition of probability, what what brought you to doing that work? Well, um, largely because you know, from from my earliest um, research in the foundations of physics, I was working on quantum mechanics, the interpretations of quantum mechanics, and more recently, I've started working on the foundations of thermal physics, so thermodynamics and statistical mechanics, and again, probably plays this very important role. 
and I always had the feeling in the back of my mind over all these years of um, working in, in these subjects that I didn't really understand what probability <laughs> was. And you, you mentioned earlier that the connection with St. Augustine, and it was a bit like time. St. Augustine said, well, we all know what time is until we have to sit down and define it. And the minute you try to define probability, you find that there are many different views, and there's a very, very rich philosophical literature on this, not just philosophers. I mean, the, the great economist Maynard Keynes defended a view of probability, which was essentially an extension of logic. He regarded probability as a, a, a logical relation between statements, a sort of a notion of partial entailment. That's not a terribly um, popular view these days, but it's, it was very influential at the time, and it's certainly, um, certainly very respectable. So the minute you start thinking about these things, you open a kind of conceptual can of worms, and I'm struggling to get out of this can at the moment. But um, the question that I've really been con considering, uh, uh, looking at in, 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 in particular, is the question as to whether there really are objective probabilities in physics. If you ask a physicist, for example, what probabilities are, and here we're looking at processes like radioactive decay or even games of chance, physicists will, will, will very often say, well, it's got something to do with frequencies of outcomes. If, I'm a, if, I, if I ask what the probability of getting heads is when I toss a coin, well, I'm going to say it's roughly related to the number of times I get heads when I toss the coin many, many, many times. So-called relative frequency. But you only have to think about it a little bit to see that they, they probably can't be defined in terms of the frequencies. If I have a completely unbiased coin, for example, I don't expect to get exactly 500 heads when I toss it a thousand times. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be a certain amount of fluctuation in the statistics. And in that talk that I listened to, I think you talked about, I don't know if it was during the Second World War, a prisoner who yeah. had a coin that he literally right. flipped... 10,000, 10, and it was like 5,067. That's exactly right. That's right. exactly right. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us if you say the probabilities are frequencies, then the probability of heads is 0 0.5067. And that doesn't sound quite right, because you have a, a prior notion that, well, this coin was unbiased, really should be one half, and getting 5,067 actually is perfectly consistent with the probability of one half. So what exactly is the probability? How do you know it? Do you know it a priori? Do you know it by looking at the coin? Or do you, do you, do you come to it by way of statistics? This is tricky. This is a tricky business. Mm -hmm. Now, Richard Feynman, a great, one of the truly great physicists of the 20th century, defined probabilities as estimates of future frequencies. Estimates of future frequencies. Well, who's making the estimates? <laughs> It's the physicists or the, you know, the rational agents who are making these things. Would the probabilities exist in the absence of rational agents? If there are estimates, well, they wouldn't. There are no, if there are no estimators, there are no estimates. So this is a very del delicate matter. And you might think, well, this is really just um, a kind of an armchair discussion. It doesn't matter in practice. But in fact, it does matter because there's um, some recent developments in the foundations of quantum mechanics in which involves trying to prove the Born rule of prob the probabilistic rule. Oh, no problem. Thank you. So there are these these recent theorems. In, in, uh, there's a, in one theorem in particular, the so-called Deutsch-Wallis theorem, where an attempt is made to actually 
um, derive the probabilistic rule in quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. Normally, we, we think of it as just an add-on. It's just an extra postulate that we put onto the to the other assumptions in quantum mechanics. Thank you. And um, thank you. How you interpret this theorem depends very much on how you understand probability. Mm-hmm. And the irony is that the two authors of this theorem, David Deutsch and David Wallace, disagree about what the theorem means because they have different understandings of what probability is. So one of the things I've been trying to get clear in my own mind is how to how to understand this very important theorem and is it well is it Deutsch that's correct or Wallace or, or neither so that's really what I've been working on so the million dollar question at the end of the semester <laughs> do you feel that maybe even if you haven't come up with I think this is the definition of what probability is do you feel closer to that understanding or that you in your mind at least have ruled out some understandings that maybe don't don't make sense. Well, in philosophy, you never you never really <laughs> ever rule anything out. It's a bit like politics, I suppose. But um, about eight years ago, I I published a paper in which I expressed some skepticism about the existence of objective probabilities. I mean, there's a sense in which clear there is a clear sense in which something is objective about radioactive decay, the half life, for example, of carbon fourteen. But what that boils down to essentially is the fact that these decay statistics are very stable. Mm-hmm. They're very stable. When you toss a coin many, many times, you're going to get frequencies that are relatively stable. They will, they'll vary from one experiment to another, but they'll all fluctuate around something like what you expect the, the probability to be. But Feynman was right. Feynman was right. The probabilities are not the frequencies. They're the estimates of future frequencies. And I'm inclined to... So the period of time that I've spent here at Notre Dame, I've been looking a lot at the literature on subjective probabilities, and in particular the way they work in physics. And I think I've become more convinced, not totally convinced, (laughs) but more convinced that the that the notion of subjective probability is the correct one, even in physics. But this is certainly a minority point of view in the literature. And so when you're talking about subjective probability, it's the idea of whatever assumptions that we bring as the person doing the estimate, basically? Well, it's essentially the following. Probabilities arise because we have certain knowledge about the past. Normally it's about the past. We have knowledge about the past. And we have to infer something about the future. This is called amplitude reasoning or inductive reasoning. Mm-hmm. It's not just time. It doesn't. It's not just about the past versus the present. It's also about, for example, I know things in the here and now, the physics that goes on in laboratories, that's tested in laboratories. How do we know that that physics is valid in the interior of a star in a distant galaxy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're making another amplitude jump mm-hmm. to we're saying what holds here in the universe is going to hold over there in terms of laws. Now, how do we justify these things? Well, that's an interesting question in itself. Physicists refer to the homogeneity of time and the homogeneity of space as a way of expressing these so-called symmetries. But ultimately, when we make hypotheses, when we jump from what we know into what we don't know, generally, these things have a kind of a probabilistic ring to them. Mm-hmm. We can't be sure. Right. We cannot be sure. People talk about, you know... It's a hugely probable the sun will rise tomorrow. Well, yes, it is. But there's always this tiny, tiny probability that some tremendous cataclysmic thing could happen to the sun. 
I mean, that's probably not a very good example, but you see what I mean. All statements about the future are essentially probabilistic. Now, the question is, are they rational? Given what we know about the past, given what there's a consensus as to we, what we know about the past, is it rational to infer something about the future? Well, what does rational mean? It's, it means it means that there are rational agents doing their job. In a sense. What if there are no rational agents in the universe? What about the early universe before there were any rational agents? Where there really this notion of induction just doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. And so does the collapse of induction also involve the collapse of the notion of probability? Well, I'm really raising questions here rather than answering them, but you can sort of see where where I'm going. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating stuff. It really, <laughs> well, I, it is fascinating. I, I, I'm, I'm really, again, I appreciate, I appreciate you having been here this semester, but appreciate you taking the time on your last day with us to come and some of the, I, as I was saying, some of the terms that we hear thrown around whether we're watching the Big Bang Theory or, or whatever else. It's nice to have some of the some of the thinking behind those explained to us. Well, thank so, you for asking me, Ted. Yeah, it's a pleasure. With a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame. For more, visit provost.nd.edu slash podcast.